you're listening to the hybrid cloud forecast series with host andre tost all right welcome everyone thanks for listening to this new episode of the hybrid cloud forecast today we have a very special guest grady booch and i was particularly looking forward to to this recording um, thanks for being with us grady my pleasure and as always, let's start out with introductions. If you could tell us a bit about your background, I suspect that many of our listeners already know you, but just for the sakes of letting everyone, getting everyone on the same stage, maybe you can tell us a bit about your professional history, kind of how you, how you got to be what you are today and what you're working on today. I remember building my first computer when I was 12. And of course, this is in the time even prior to Schottky TTL, so it was straight out of transistors. And shortly thereafter, I realized software was kind of where it was at. And I remember walking around the streets of Amarillo, Texas. This is in, what, the early 60s, looking for a job. And of course, nobody was going to hire me at 12, 13. But I stumbled into the sales office for IBM, of all things. And the salesperson there took pity upon me and said, hey, Grady, interesting stuff you're doing. Here's a Fortran 4 manual. Why don't you go read it? And I'm sure he fully expected I would get lost and never come back. But there I was bright and early on the next Monday. And I said, hey, this is pretty neat. I've written some programs work and I run them. And so for most of that summer, I spent my time learning how to key punch and run programs and debug them on an IBM 1130. And that was my first program. Quickly run to the end of that story, that Fortran 4 manual. A few years later, I was on the board of trustees for the Computer History Museum, where I had the opportunity to do a number of oral histories. One of those was to John Backus. And so I went to John, interviewed him for a full day, and I told him that story and handed him that manual, and he signed it, which is pretty cool. John sadly passed away probably a month or two after my interview, but uh, it was kind of interesting full circle. I never anticipated being at IBM, but indeed here I am. To fill in the gaps in between, just very briefly, I went to the Air Force Academy because I wanted to work in space and I wanted to work with computers. And back in the day, that was the best place to do so. Indeed, my first assignment was in Space Command. This is before Space Force even existed, where I worked on ground support system for the military's space program. And then I started up a software company with two of my classmates, Mike Devlin and Paul Levy. We grew to about 3,500 people across a dozen countries, a billion in revenue, and then IBM and Microsoft were both bidding us for us. IBM got the winning bid, and so here I am. In my years since 2003, I worked in the Rational Group for a while, moved over to research, where primarily these days I'm splitting my time between two things. I do work in embodied cognition and artificial general intelligence, and I also work with a lot of customers in the area of architecture, especially for really large-scale systems. And I guess the lesson here is it's not just cloud-centric systems, but the world of computing is bigger than just cloud. And that keeps me busy on Mondays, and the rest of the week I just blow it off here on Maui. <laughs> okay. I wish. That's, uh, that sounds great. So one thing, you know, which is interesting, if someone meets me in the street and said, do you know Grady Booch? I would say, of course I do. He's the inventor of UML. And you didn't mention that at all. Uh, how does that fit into that history? Great question. You know, the UML is one of the things I'm proud of doing, but it's not the only thing I'm proud of having done. In its time, it was the right thing to do. Here we were in the second golden age of software engineering, the first being characterized by structured analysis and design techniques led by people such as Constantine and Jordan and DeMarco and others. But 
With the sea change happening in the 80s and 90s, the advent of the web, the move toward very, very complex distributed systems, it was very clear that the structured programs and methods were simply inadequate. So I began to work in trying to reconcile some of the ideas of, of Robert Liskov and, and Parnas and others into a new paradigm. This was also the same time that people like Bjarne Strustrup were discovering the same kind of thing. In fact, Bjarne and I encountered one another by happenstance at a conference. We found that our work resonated with one another. And so we went off on a, a countrywide tour lecturing about what we were doing. And the UML was, you know, born in the roots of that. We hired Jim to bring together what I was doing with his work. We bought Evar's company and thus was formed the UML. And its intent was always to be a language for visualizing, specifying, reasoning about the artifacts of a, of a large complex system. And even to this day, even working on AI systems, I still use the UML. So it's a cool thing, but it's I just view it as one of the things that I've done. Is it actually even further evolving is it, or it is what it is? And I mean, there, I'm, I, I know there's a whole ecosystem of tools that were built around this, not even mentioning literature and so forth. Is it, is it still alive and kicking or is it pretty much? Uh... No, it's still alive and kicking, very much alive and kicking. I'd say at its peak, the UML, and here we are talking in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, the turn of the century, as they say. UML had a penetration in the worldwide software industry of maybe around 20%, which is pretty remarkable. These days, it's much less, but it's still being used. And I find it deliciously ironic that Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Google, IBM are rediscovering the importance of visual notation. Go look at Amazon's site and look for their architecture pages about AWS and see they have a particular notation for describing uh, an AWS system. So they've kind of reinvented bits of the UML just using different notation. And the other thing interesting about the UML is it went in a direction that I never expected. There's a group of biologists of all things who realize they their industry faces a problem of trying to describe biological mechanisms at the cell level. And so there's actually a modification and adaptation of the UML that's being used in the biological community to describe cell mechanisms. And then lastly, there's SysML. Uh, as the UML started moving into more and more hardware kind of systems, software intensive systems, in which hardware is an important element. And this is, again, beyond systems that are just cloud centric. It was realized that the UML approach was very useful to reasoning about these systems. So SysML was born. Indeed, I am currently on literally the largest software project I've ever been engaged with. Has a lifetime of expected 50 years. It's literally several billion dollars in cost. And it's using the UML and SysML. So yes, the UML is very much alive. And I use it in my work even. All right, interesting. I, I think I want to revisit that in a little while. But before we do, I'd like to move on to kind of cloud, right? Cloud and then in particular, obviously, hybrid cloud. And maybe we could start out by, I, I don't know if you have a definition of if someone were to meet you in the elevator and said, what's hybrid cloud? And what would your answer be? Well, a cloud means basically I'm using somebody else's computer. And a hybrid cloud means for me is that some of those other people are out there and some of those computers are in here. Actually, I have my own cloud that I should show you. Uh, you'll notice all these robots behind me. And that comes from some of the work that I've been doing with uh, AGI and actually also NASA. This is Pepper, a little bit larger robot. This is now a smaller one. I've got some legged robots. And for some of the AGI was work was doing, 
I decided, you know, I need my own cloud. So I built my own little cloud here. This is actually a cluster of four Jetson Nanos running Kubernetes. And so I've got a local cloud. Would this be hybrid? You bet, because this little thing also connects to some other cloud works that I do. So I actually have a hybrid cloud that's partially on-premise in my, in my office here. Why do I do this? Well, latency issues for one. And also I've got a whole bunch of GPUs here that give me some interesting things on the edge that I can't get on other clouds that are accessible. Okay, that puts hybrid cloud in the context of location, right? Yep. But is is there also, you know, in, in, is there more than that, right? Is it a, a computing style? I, I sometimes feel like these days we call everything that's, that's state-of-the-art is cloud something, right? Cloud engineering, cloud computing, cloud application development, and so forth. We just put cloud on it. But what does that actually mean, right? So in that respect, I, I always feel like, and, and I hear others say the same, that cloud is not just a place where I run things, but it's also the way in which I built the things that run there in which I built the software and that that will actually get us back to you know modeling and and, and software design and so forth it, has that changed or is it different when I'm doing things in the cloud as opposed to how we did it say 15 20 years ago there's a great Saturday night live commercial from years ago that touts a product that's both a dessert topping and a floor wax. Cloud's kind of like that. It's a dessert topping and a floor wax. So what you're alluding to is actually a deep issue in the whole topic of software engineering and software architecture. And let me go down a rabbit hole for a moment, and then I'll come back up to answer your question. I have had the opportunity to work with a delightful gentleman by the name of Philippe Krushten. We worked together at Rational on a variety of things, including the Rational Unified process and on the UML itself. Philippe, among other things, got targeted to work on the Canadian Air Traffic Control System. In fact, I was also on that project. This is around the same time IBM was working on the advanced automation system here in the US and Hughes lost that bid, but they wanted up in up in Canada. And so they built this system. In fact, to this day, if you fly across the US to Europe or into Canada, assuming we are gonna fly again someday in these post-COVID times, you're gonna fly over a great circle route that will take you across the northern border of the US, which takes you into Canadian airspace. You are running code that Philippe designed that was originally written in ADA. And in fact, it probably still a lot of ADA sitting there. One of the things that Philippe recognized is that when you're dealing with systems of that scale and complexity, you can't look at its architecture from one point of view, but rather there are multiple points of view, you must consider it. This is where he came up with the idea of the four plus one view of model architect. And that idea was even further codified into a standard ISO IEC IEEE standard uh, 420010, if I'm not mistaken, on software architecture descriptions. And it basically says just that one has to look at it from multiple points of view. So popping my head out of this rabbit hole again, you are touching upon exactly that. You're dealing with a thing, cloud, that can be looked at from multiple points of view by different stakeholders. So for the one hand, it's certainly issues of location. I can look at cloud from the point of view of how I physically separate my regions and where the data it is. And those concerns are often led by issues of privacy, issues of latency. Heck, there are even international rules that say if I'm doing X, that data has to live in a particular place. So that view gives me one thing. But from a programmer's perspective, it also means that 
I have to deal with a different kind of view, and that is the architectural view. How do I run things on a cloud versus, say, a monolith? Uh, microservice architectures are obviously the emerging and, and dominant style here. Serverless architectures as well. And they represent an architectural pattern, an architectural style that is a different view in the cloud itself. The point being is that depending upon how you look at cloud, different stakeholders will have different views, and they eventually all come together into the thing that's deployed up. I guess the other lesson in this is cloud looks new, serverless looks new, but there are some, some existential lingering truths about software architecture that endure no matter what the platform is. And this is one, the notion of multiple views. Okay, that's that's a good example of something that I was after in terms of, you know, if I use the term software architecture, or I'll give you an example of something that we're struggling with. You know, we at, we at IBM, we obviously have lots of software offerings. We have some of them that we sell for customers to take and download and install on whatever server they may have handy. We have others that we sell as what's called managed services, right? The whole software as a service kind of thing. I sometimes feel like we're trying to figure out, you know, what's the right balance in terms of how common can we keep the code between these two kind of models? And I think we're increasingly getting to the point that they're, that they're actually more different than we thought, so to speak. And that is because of these different perspectives, you know, where different things play a role, where for on-premises, when I install and manage it myself, I'm more worried about the scalability of the solution and the resilience because I need to deal with those things. In a managed service, I don't, but there it goes just to get the economies of scale It, it is an, an important point for example, is multi-tenancy, and that then drives an entirely different set of requirements. So the question really is, you know, does that mean that there is, if I want to do something in a cloud-native fashion, is that an entirely different architecture than if I would how I would have done it before? And on top of that, will I have different architectures depending on whether I run it on a bunch of little nanocomputers in my office or in a public cloud data center somewhere else? Wow. How many hours do we have to talk about this? Because this is this is absolutely the key point. Quick aside, I'm writing a book. I've got one of two books under contract. One that my long-suffering editor has been waiting for for several years is the Handbook of Software Architecture, in which I've been trying to basically update the work that Mary Shaw and her colleagues did in kind of defining the first set of architectural patterns. Because I realized there are many different kinds of patterns that emerge. And this is also another rabbit hole. Architectural patterns are emerging in the AI community and the quantum community as well. We're beginning to see the further maturation of their world and the discovery of certain patterns. Transformer is, for example, the pattern used by uh, GPT-3 and AlphaFold to a degree. So, but that's another topic unto itself. So what you pointed out is that the importance of looking at a system with multiple views, but also this is why it's given rise to things like DevSecOps, because somebody working in the DevSecOps space, people normally think of just you know DevOps, but security is also something you have to bake in. That becomes interesting because in effect, we are reifying cross-cutting concerns. The needs of the, the concerns of somebody working in DevSecOps covers both the logical as well as the physical side of things. And we need that role because we need that cross-cutting. As one final example here, literally this morning, I was working with a research group that was proposing a particularly interesting AI system. And they had done it in an interesting way, kind of stuffed everything into one container. And my next observation was, this is really interesting from a functional point of view, but have you considered the issues of scalability? How would you scale this? Because the way they design it gave no consideration to scaling or privacy and security. So 
I get the realization here is that to build good systems requires a holistic view of it. That's where architecture comes into play. But also you must remember, you got to start somewhere. And if you look at Netflix or AWS or any of those, you realize they all tended to start with monoliths. And as we learned where the fracture lines were in such a systems, then and only then did it become possible to break them out into microservices. This is exactly the advice that Martin Fowler offers in his ideas of, our, of microservices as well. So can I derive from all that that I still need a methodology that I follow in all of this and in the approach that then creates the kinds of output that you just described. And I'm, I'm asking that because I feel like, so we're, for example, at IBM, we're following the approach of design thinking, right? Which is obviously the starting point being I design the experience I want my user to have. And then, and then the technical implementation is kind of derived from that. So that is the starting point. And that's a certain methodology we, we follow. I, I talk to a lot of groups where they say we're doing agile, but they're not really doing agile at all. They're just, they're just writing code and, and not following any methodology whatsoever. And so what, 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 what would you suggest? I mean, if someone comes to you and says, I'm going to start this big project to create a new application for my enterprise, what's the methodology I should follow? So I often get parachuted into such circumstances, and there are a handful of questions I will ask immediately upon landing. The first is, will you tell me about your CI/CD pipeline? The next I'll ask is, draw me your architecture, and then we'll go from there. Let's talk about why those questions are important because the answers will give me the direction I would answer your question. If their reaction is, I don't really know what CICD is, then we start there because without the presence of a good tooling, a good culture, of refactoring and release, it's really hard to institute any kind of architecture or any kind of agile discipline. And then on the area of architecture, that question is asked because it gives you a sense as to both the level of maturity of that organization as well as the forces that act upon them. So let's talk about that latter one for a moment. What is architecture? And we're now talking about a topic that transcends cloud itself because remember, cloud-centric, web-centric systems at scale Frankly, they are a part of the landscape of computing, but they're only a small part of it, relatively speaking, as you look at the, the, the larger world. An important part, nonetheless, and currently a growing and dominant part. What is architecture? The classical definition of architecture, as devised by Clements and others, was architecture represents form plus function plus rationale. That's okay, but I think it's rather descriptive as opposed to proscriptive. So I use this definition. All architecture is design, but not all design is architecture. Architecture represents the set of significant design decisions that shape the form and function of a system where we measure significant by cost of change. Back in the 60s, the choice of doing of subroutines was considered to be a major architectural decision because back then the cost of simply a function call was relatively high. Today, we don't even think about it. And so depending upon the nature of the technology, what significant will change and what be, might be significant to uh, one of the fangs, let's say a Google, would be very different than the, the needs and concerns or significant issues of a startup. So your mileage varies. So if that person came to me and came to me and said, I want to do this new thing, there's a whole lot more I need to understand before I can give them a good answer. If they go down the path and say, we want to do agile things, well, you know, what is agile? Well, in some cases, it's an excuse to not do design, which is never a good thing. Some cases, especially in the scrum world where 
you know, people worry about getting certified and doing all this. The danger is we've entered into the a cargo cult, a high ceremony cult, where if you follow these steps in this religion, magical things will happen. Both of those cases miss the point of Agile, which says, let's self-organize our teams, let's focus upon results, let's do it incrementally and iteratively. Design thinking is certainly an interesting approach, but I always caution people who are entering it to realize users is not just somebody who's sitting at the edge of uh, an iOS client or an Android client, but there are lots of different users of a system. A user might be somebody who's attending to a ransomware attack, might be a user who's dealing with adding a new business rule. So there are many kinds of users and the problem with design thinking, as good as it is, it often you'll be led down a path where you forget those other points of view. Let me pause there for a moment because there are so many threads we could pick up. One point I, I was trying to ask you in between here is, so if we say there's architecture that needs to happen, there's architectural decisions that need to be made and, and articulated and documented, how does that relate to the fact that if I'm using... DevOps or DevSecOps and CICD that I'm going to be in kind of in a continuous loop, right? It's obviously not waterfall. It's like I start somewhere, I see how it goes, I make improvements, both functionally and operationally. So do I, is architecture and the architectural artifacts, are they part of that loop? Or is that something I do once and then I say, I've made my decisions and I'm going to stick with them? Architecture has to be continuous. And there will be periods of what Herbert Simon speaks of is punctuated equilibrium. Uh, let me explain those. I, I look at the history of, of, of Photoshop, of the history of Netflix, and both of those have gone through, by my count, four or five major architectural changes. The earliest days of Photoshop was a monolithic application written, I forget which language, might have been C at the time. And as people started using it more and more, they realized, oh my gosh, we need our own virtual memory system. We need uh, sort of a different plug-in kind of mechanisms. I had a chance to sit down with the, the main architects of Photoshop, and they walked me through these major architectural changes. So that's true of every architecture. There will come a time where you build an operational system whose architecture becomes to be a little bit stabilized, and that's a good thing, and that's when your CI/CD pipelines really kick into play. Let me do another little name-dropping. Stuart Brand uh, of the Whole Earth Catalog has written this delightful book called How Buildings Learn. And in it, he describes, he, he looks at a number of buildings and asks the question, why do some of these buildings last over centuries while many others fall down? And one of the keys of it is what he calls the shearing levels of change. In software, we speak of this as separation of concerns. So in both civil architecture and software architecture, there are some design decisions that remain significant and unchanging. There are things like, for example, what a customer means that's there, a tax record in the IRS system. These are pretty fundamental and you tend not to change them. On the other hand, the UI that I throw together on an Android or iOS app, those are a little bit more disposable. So they change more often. What will happen therefore in any system is the significant design decisions will solidify themselves from the inside out. And therefore a CI/CD pipeline takes advantage of that and tries to continuously grow that architecture. And lastly, this is using a phrase from Hofstetter, the idea of a strange loop, we document those architectural decisions using architectural decision records, which themselves could be part of a versionable GitHub item that I put in the Git repository. It all comes together. Okay. Talking about documenting things or creating these models and so forth, do you have a set of favorite tools also for DevSecOps, or does it literally change every year? Not so much changing every year, but I think it changes on the domain. There are some things 
things I'm doing with DevSecOps where I'm dealing with private health information. There's other DevSecOps I'm doing that deal with if we fail, you know, nations collapse and people die. Very different scale of things. So it truly depends upon the nature of risk, the nature of ceremony that's going on. Real truly though, it depends. Um, I think one of the things that happening, it's happening, and it's a good sign, is that the cloud community has begun to identify common architectural patterns. This is why you see things like Kafka. This is why you think, see patterns such as serverless. We've come to understand that certain domains are best implemented by these certain kinds of kinds of frameworks. And therefore, if I'm starting something new, I may say, hey, I'm gonna use Kafka uh, for this particular thing. You have just made a significant architectural decision that may be just fine, but it's a significant decision that in years past would have taken weeks, if not years, to sort out. And so today, I can build upon these larger architectural frameworks. And so a lot of my architectural decisions are done. I have to glue them together. Okay. Another thing, you mentioned the term a couple of times that I want to poke in a little bit is this term patterns. I remember back in the day when I started as a software developer, it was we, we had this Bible that was here's the, I can't even remember the name of the book, but it was it was like everyone had to have it, um, and it was, you know, software design, patterns of software design, I think it was called. Design patterns by the Gang of Four, Gamma of Lacities, Johnson. That's exactly right. Exactly right. The Gang of Four. That's what I was looking for. So, so do we have something similar to that today? I would assume that those patterns still apply, right? Because they they're still relevant. I would I would think, right? So, is there more going on in the world of patterns? And I think you mentioned a couple of times cloud computing patterns, architectural patterns that we find in there based on domains. Absolutely. So, for example, event-driven architecture is a pattern. It's one that, you know, I apply, I may choose to implement with Kafka. I may choose to break it up into lambdas. Overarching, it's events, and I can go down a couple of paths for how I implement it, depending upon what my cost needs are and all that. But yeah, so event-driven is a good classic example of that. But remember that not every cloud-centric system makes sense with just events. I've got other things where I'm dealing with uh, transactions that require all the usual ACID stuff. And so stateless kind of architectures are very useful if I can be relatively loose about my results from an overarching system perspective. But if on the other hand, I have to depend upon complete integrity and consistency of data for the system as a whole, then you're going to do some very different decisions with regards to caching. So again, your mileage varies, which is why you have to look at a system from multiple points of view. I mean, for example, if, if I'm looking at Twitter here on my on my phone for a moment, it's really great because it can afford to be sloppy. I post something and, you know, I expect it'll be there, but you know, I don't have to guarantee it's going to be everywhere in the world. On the other hand, if I'm doing some transactional thing, very different architecture than what I do with a social app like Twitter. Talking about Twitter, my iPhone has decided that your tweets are very interesting to me and they pop up uh, several times a day. In fact, I saw, I think, a couple this morning where it popped up on my phone and said, Grady Boots just retweeted something. And I was like, oh, we'll talk later today. So that was interesting. <laughs> I, I tend to cover a lot of topics on my Twitter feed. I think in the last several days, I was uh, commenting upon Nikki Meninja's latest tweet, which I won't talk about because it's a little NS. FW and also some interesting things happening in the world of NFTs. So, okay. interesting. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're coming to the end of our time slot here. One thing I sure want to ask, and there again, you alluded to something earlier, and I don't know if that's if you're at liberty to talk about it some more, but 
I guess my question is, I'm curious about this 50-year project that you are involved in and if you can talk more about that. And then secondly, just kind of, you know, what gets you really excited right now? What are your most favorite things to work on at the moment? So a typical week in the life of Grady says, I spend about 20% of my time with customer-related things. And one of those is this very large project. It's it's a project that involves both hard real-time as well as classic batch cloud-centric kinds of things and everything in between. I'm also working with uh, a number of other customers across multiple domains that I can't mention. That's about 20% of my time. I spend maybe 10% of my time mentoring during the week. I'm in a blessed place in the computing field, and so I want to you know, give back as much as I can. I spend maybe 40% on some research activities, mostly in the area of embodied cognition and what we call artificial general intelligence. I have a particularly interesting project I'm doing with some neuroscientists trying to basically, in effect, bridge the ideas of software architecture with what some of the learnings are happening in uh, the mapping of the, the circuitry of the brain. And lastly, I'm writing, trying to write a couple of books, uh, one on architecture, and the last one uh, I'll give the pitch for. Some of you may remember Carl Sagan's Cosmos, that wonderful series, not the Neil deGrasse Tyson one, but the predecessor of it. In working with the then CEO of the Computer History Museum, we were having a discussion and I said, hey, hey, uh, John, why don't you do one of these series like uh, Cosmos, but about computing? He paused and said, Grady, why don't you be our Carl? And I responded and said, well, I'm no Sagan, but that's an intriguing idea. So for the last several years, I've been trying to develop and bring to the market a 12-part, one-hour set of documentaries for the general public dealing with the intersection of computing and the human experience, looking at how computing has grown uh, from warfare, from commerce, and how it impacts not just uh, commerce and warfare, but also art, faith, and Basically, it asks the question, what does it mean to be human? So that's that's a lot of fun. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a full plate. And and you mentioned earlier that you live in Hawaii. So so I, I assume that all competes with the beach and the palm trees. And I, I don't know if you surf or, you know, I, it must be tough to live there and try to stay at work. It's It's a burden, but, you know, somebody has to do it. <laughs> okay. And the great thing is I, I, IBM makes it possible. I mean, literally... Uh, I've been a remote worker since 82. I've never really worked in an office. And the great thing about being here is it makes it easy for me to interact with people all across the world. Software never sleeps. And at its peak, I was leading a project across six laboratories across as many time zones. And it works. All right. So thank you. Well, yeah, thank you for making time for us today. And and you said earlier, you only work Mondays. Now I can attest to that. That's not true because it is Wednesday today. Oh, my um, gosh. Well, it's a really long Monday then. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Well, again, thanks a lot for coming. This was great insight. And for the rest of you, thanks for listening in. And uh, we'll wrap it up here and hope to see you all soon again. 